I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about North Korea, the impossible state, as my colleague Victor Cha has called it, which is also the name of our podcast, The Impossible State, which you can listen to on CSIS podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. We have with us today Dr. Victor Cha, who is our Korea chair, the head of our Asia programs, and just an all-around great, great guy. I should have also mentioned he's vice dean at Georgetown. Victor, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Great to be with you. So let me ask you, Victor, we've seen some growing signs of another nuclear test from North Korea What are the signs and what are you feeling about all this? Sure. I think you're right. There are lots of signals and signs that they are about to do their seventh nuclear test. The way we look at this is we use commercial satellite imagery to monitor the Pungiri nuclear test site. And there uh, there basically are four tunnels there, four underground tunnels very deep into into this mountain. The first two tunnels, tunnel one and tunnel two, where they is where they have done all six of their last nuclear tests. And what has been of interest lately to us and to the media and to others is Tunnel 3. There seems to be a lot of work taking place at Tunnel 3. And it looks as though they are have refurbished the tunnel to make it ready for more testing. And then in addition to that, we have more recent work that's come out that shows they're also doing activity at Tunnel 4 which might be signs that there could be more tests after the seventh test. At any rate, there are some real clear signals that they are prepared to do a test. It looks like all the preparations are done, and it's really up to the North Korean leader to decide when he wants to carry this out. So, yeah, it's as always, it's in Kim Jong-un's hands. But what is his motivation for launching the tests they've already done this year and then this test we're talking about, which, as you mentioned, would be their seventh. So in terms of the nuclear test itself, I think the general view is that they've tested different types of nuclear devices in their previous six tests. And what I think many people believe is that with the seventh test, they might test a lighter nuclear device that could be used for battlefield use. So a tactical nuclear weapon for war fighting as opposed to you know, a big sort of plutonium bomb or, you know, something something along those lines. So there are scientific reasons why they're doing these tests, is they're trying to test a new technology, a new capability that would allow them to then threaten the use of nuclear weapons on the battlefield and not just in terms of threatening U.S. cities, you know, far away. They can threaten the Korean Peninsula against the South Korean military that is qualitatively much better than the North Korean military. So this would be what they would try to do to equalize the difference between the two sides. And then in terms of their missile testing, they've done more missile tests between January, June of 2022 than they've done in any single year since we've been collecting data on this. And I think that is also a part of part of it is a message to the Biden administration that North Korea is not going to sit still, that they want sanctions lifting, unilateral sanctions lifting by the Biden administration. But the other aspect of that is to try to show that they can challenge and possibly defeat our national missile defense system, our ability to stop them from firing ballistic missiles at the United States. This isn't one of these big, scary, 
you know, I'm, we're North Korea, we have nuclear weapons. We already know that. We know they have nuclear capability. But this is the kind of thing that gets into the nitty gritty of what we can and can't stop and what they could use in some future conflict. I think that's right. Before it was just a few bombs in the basement, right? And now it's much more developing capabilities where they can fire several missiles at one time from mobile platforms using liquid propellant. So that makes it very hard for us to try to take them out before they fly them. And flying several at a time that could fly and try to hit U.S. bases in Korea, U.S. bases in Japan, possibly hold cities or bases in the U.S. mainland hostage. So this is they're building towards a much more sophisticated capability, which I think is concerning. They are also showing that they can not only field many missiles, but that they can possibly deploy decoys or other sorts of countermeasures multiple warheads on a single missile that, again, then make it very difficult for our mass national missile defense systems to intercept these missiles if they did, you know, a bunch of these at once. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm not saying that the United States can't defend against this, because right now we probably can. But the trend lines are not good, because they're going to multiply their ability to fly missiles and use countermeasures and decoys against us and we have a limited number of interceptors to, to deal with that. So I have to ask, Kim Jong-un avoided testing while President Biden visited Asia a few weeks ago. You know, if he had, it would have sent a very strong message to the United States and President Biden while he was there. So what held them back from doing it then? Were they just not ready? Well, it's very difficult to really know what goes on in the mind of Kim Jong-un. Yeah, it's, sure. Uh, it's a bit of a black box. <laughs> but, you know, I think we could surmise that, you know, there's always a scientific reason for the timetable for testing. And so that could have had something to do with it. They just weren't ready at the right time. The weather conditions were not right. There could be a number of, of things. The other is political, tactical, in the sense that they didn't they didn't want to over-escalate the situation by, you know, flying missiles into the region at a time when the U.S. the U.S. president is there. Or it could have been that they were waiting to see what came out of President Biden's meetings in Seoul and Tokyo, wait to see what the results of those meetings are with regard to North Korea, if there's anything that they like in that. And then if there isn't, then they could just test later, which they did actually on his way out. North Korea carried out some more tests. Well, and now we're coming up on our nation's birthday, July 4th, next week, which is one of those symbolic days, not just for us, but for our enemies. And do you think he's going to launch on July 4th? Is that something you and your team are looking at? And what would he gain by testing on July 4th? So, yes, they definitely like to test during our holidays. I think the holiday they've tested the most on is Memorial Day. Mm. Uh, but they've done their share of tests during July 4th. When I was in government, they ruined one of my July 4th weekends with doing um, seven missile tests <laughs> over July 4th weekend. I remember it very well. I uh, I remember it very well sitting in my study on a secure phone while everybody else was celebrating July 4th barbecue outside. So they certainly know how to ruin people's vacations. And I think they take... Uh, <laughs> I, they take some pleasure in that. Uh, I think they also do it because they want to try to get as much attention as they can. And you 
especially, you know, these long weekends, the, the news is a little bit slow and they can dominate the news cycle that way. So I think there's a tactical reason in that sense. So I wouldn't put it past them that they could try something on July 4th weekend. It wouldn't be the first time that they did it if they were to do it then. So we're all going to have to strap in and just wait and see, I guess. The other thing that's been going on is North Korea has accused the United States of setting up what they call an Asian NATO in response to joint military exercises with Japan, South Korea, and has vowed to strengthen their defense. What's going on with that? Are North Korea's fears of an Asian NATO unfounded? So I think the reason the North Koreans said that, I think there are two reasons they said that. The first is that they are not happy with the improved relations among the United States, Japan, and South Korea, our two major allies in the region. The relations between Japan and Korea have been quite bad over the past five years. The three leaders, Biden, President Yun of South Korea, and Prime Minister Kishide of Japan, met on the sidelines of the NATO summit in Madrid. That was the first time that the three leaders met since 2017. So if you think about it, these are our key democratic allies in Northeast Asia, our key security treaty allies. And there has not been a trilateral summit meeting for five years, right? Uh, And that has been because of some of the historical issues between the two. At any rate, the fact that the three allies are starting to come together again because Biden wants it, Yun, the South Korean president, wants it, and Kishida, the Japanese prime minister, is willing to accept it to sort of restore the relationship from this very bad five-year period is certainly something that the North Koreans don't like to see. The North Koreans don't like to see it. The Chinese don't like to see it. The Russians don't like to see it. And so their reaction to that, to me, is actually a good sign. It shows that they're worried that the trilateral relationship is improving. Second, I think, is because NATO invited four key Indo-Pacific countries to the NATO summit in Madrid. That's Japan, South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand. And so I think that was something that also the North Koreans, the Chinese don't like because it's it seems like it's connecting the Indo-Pacific security theater to the European, to the NATO security theater, which of course is the desire of leaders in these two regions to bring together as big a coalition as possible to manage both the war in Europe and the repercussions for China and North Korea's ballistic missile and nuclear program. Yeah, and their ongoing acts of aggression here and there and their provocations. And, you know, it's only natural that we would want to have an alliance like that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that, you know, no one's declaring an Asian NATO except the North Koreans. They're calling it an Asian NATO. But, you know, it's it's pretty clear that the Biden administration's coalitional approach to diplomacy, you know, bringing, working together with allies, pulling these groupings together, whether it's this trilateral summit, the Quad Leader Summit. At NATO, they had a meeting of the U.S., Japan, Australia, and South Korea, right? A different type of, of Quad grouping. These are all signs that the United States is trying to build these coalitions in a way that we were not doing uh, in the previous administration, frankly. We were just not doing that. And, you know, China's a huge country and no single country can deal with China on its own. So you need a coalition. Right. And and so that's that is what they're pulling together on the security side. It's what the U.S. is pulling together on the supply chain side, you know, with things like this. What's it called? The Minerals Security Partnership. Right. I mean, these are all efforts at trying to work as a group because it's very difficult for each of these countries to deal with China on their own. And we really believe in these kinds of alliances. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the U.S. alliance story in East Asia is a success story like no other. It is one of the one of the main successes of the Cold War. I mean, our position in Asia at the end of World War II was, you know, we, we weren't deeply engaged in the region. We didn't know a lot about these countries. We knew very little about these countries, in fact. And, you know, what we've seen over the past half century has been the blossoming of democracy, the growth of markets, to the point where these countries like Japan and Korea now are not just our junior ally partners, they are our equal partners on everything from security to technology to climate change to supply chains. They need us, but we need them too. That's a real success story. Yeah, let's talk about that for a minute, Victor. I mean, South Korea is so important to us as a technological partner, isn't it? Yes, extremely important. I mean, you just look at all the investments that South Korea is making in you know, two key areas. One of them is uh, memory chips, and the other is EV batteries, electric vehicle batteries. Uh, huge investments by South Korean companies in the United States to build plants that will produce these high-end technological pieces that are important to Climate change are important, obviously, to cars, they're important to everything, everything that we do, anything that requires a chip, you know, that we do. So extremely important partner. They're also an important partner on global health. You know, South Korea is a production hub for mRNA vaccine in Asia. I mean, we produce them here, but they're a production hub through a licensing agreement to produce mRNA vaccine uh, in Asia for the world as well. So they are very important in terms of other health equipment, PPE. They actually loaned us PPE at the beginning of the pandemic when we were short of PPE. So, so a very important partner, both Korea and Japan, very important partners for the U.S., not just in Asia, but globally. And in our support for South Korea, Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman has said there'd be a, a swift and forceful response if North Korea were to conduct a nuclear test. How, how would we actually respond? So it's a good question. I mean, I think one of the ways we would respond would be, of course, to try to go to the UN Security Council, as we've done in the past, to get more sanctions put on North Korea. That will be a little bit more challenging this time, because in the past, China and Russia would sign on to these Security Council resolutions. But given the current war in Ukraine and the state of US-China relations, I don't think they will. I think it will also mean that the United States, South Korea, and Japan will do a lot more work on missile defense. They do have a trilateral missile defense exercise scheduled this summer to monitor and to track uh, simulated North Korean missile launches. Um, so I think we'd see more of that activity. And then we also might see the rotation of strategic assets to the region, you know, as again, part of an effort to shore up extended nuclear deterrence with our allies in Korea and Japan. The North Korean missile threat, of course, is not just a missile threat to South Korea. If anything, the majority of the operational ballistic missiles are targeted on Japan and U.S. bases in Japan. So um, this has to be dealt with trilaterally. And so I think the summit between Biden, Yun, and Kishida, you know, on the sidelines of NATO helps to under underscore that point. So if we're to take these actions following North Korea's action, what do people anticipate that North Korea does following our actions? Well, I mean, we could get an escalation game for sure. We've certainly gotten into those in the past where they could do more missile testing or make more statements. The other possibility, it's not impossible, is that sometimes when we reach these crescendos in terms of North Korean provocations, 
they're actually followed by a diplomatic opening where people look to sort of ratchet down the crisis. I'm less confident that that's going to be the case this time, again, because you know, China is not trying to play a role. You know, Russia is not trying to play a role. If anything, they're trying to undermine our efforts at diplomacy. The Biden administration has tried at least 20 times to make contact with North Korea to speak anytime, anyplace, anywhere without preconditions. And thus far, the North Koreans have not responded. So many of us who've done these negotiations in the past, and we actually had the meeting of a group of us former negotiators just the other evening. You know, I think the general consensus is North Korea is going to carry out this seventh test. There may be more ballistic missile tests that they want to do to demonstrate and test new technology. And then when they feel that they have accomplished that, and at the same time, they feel that they need humanitarian assistance for their food problem and for their COVID problem, at that point, they might be ready, ready to talk but no one believes it's going to happen before they do a seventh test. That leaves us with thinking, what does South Korea do if they do something like this and it escalates before you know, there's a chance to ratchet it down? What is South Korea saying they're going to do? So South Korea has a new president, President Yoon, been in office not for very long now, maybe let, you know, less than three months. He's tougher on North Korea than the previous South Korean president. And what he's focused a lot on is sanctions for North Korean proliferation, nuclear proliferation, human rights, meaning the improving the human rights situation of the North Korean people, because of course, it's the North Korean leadership that is doing all of these, of these activities. It's not the people of North Korea. The people of North Korea are suffering terribly. And then also, they're interested in doing more on missile defense with the United States on their own, potentially with Japan. They're interested in early deployment of a Korean version of the Israeli Iron Dome system. They're also interested potentially, possibly in a second THAAD battery, Terminal High Altitude Area Defense Battery in South Korea. That's what everybody wants right now. Yeah, that's what everybody wants. They don't have enough of them on the shelf. That's what everybody yeah. wants. <laughs> and then also focusing on their own counter-strike capabilities. So every time North Korea fi fires these missiles, you know, South Korea is responding. It's not that they're responding with missiles at North Korea, but they're responding with their own missile demonstrations as a countermeasure to show that they are capable, in fact, more capable than the North Koreans when it comes to ballistic and cruise missile. So, Victor, let me ask you this. In the past, Kim Jong-un has shown a disregard for the well-being of his people, and this is well-documented, and you're seeing it now with COVID as well. Do sanctions actually work? It's a complicated question, I would say. So the first thing I would say is that the suffering of the North Korean people doesn't have to do with the majority of the sanctions that the international community have put on North Korea. Because of the majority of the sanctions the international community have put on North Korea have been for things related to proliferation financing. So state-owned companies that carry out illicit activities, these sorts of things. The human rights abuses in the supply chain when North Korea takes its coal and exports it to Russia, right? These are the things that are being sanctioned. Only recently in 2016 and 2017, not US, but general UN sanctions were also uh, imposed on some of the general trade in North Korea. So that includes fuel imports, but it also includes exports of some of their goods like seafoods, textiles, some of these things. 
arguably those things are having more of an impact on the people because you know that is not proliferation related uh, income right that is that is general commerce income but those sanctions were put on in 2016 and 2017 because of a bevy of nuclear missile tests that North Korea is doing. When Trump met Kim Jong-un in February of 2019 in Hanoi, the main sanctions that he wanted lifted were the 2016 and 2017 sanctions, these general trade sanctions. So we know those things are having a bite on the regime. But the, the main reason that the North Korean people suffer is because of very bad economic choices that the leadership in North Korea has made, just very, very bad economic choices that devote the majority of their national resources to their weapons program, and that don't allow for a normal functioning economy where they could trade with other countries and then get income that then they could use you know, to, to help their people. So just to give a very simple example of this, North Korea, the northern part of the Korean Peninsula is very rich in minerals, right? They have coal, nickel, iron ore, even some rare earth minerals, and they have heavy industry. They don't have a lot of agriculture or farming land. That's mostly in the South. The North Korean leadership made the decision that they want to pursue heavy industry and minerals, but rather than pursuing that, those areas and then trading those, you know, trading those commodities on the international market for a hard currency that, that they could then use to buy food for their people, they said, we're going to do heavy industry and agriculture at the same time, and we're going to be self-sufficient in both, right? That's just not a feasible economic strategy, right? especially when you're sending all the people, the workers to the factories, and you have nobody working in the farms on the very little farmland that you have. How are you going to be self-sufficient in agriculture, right? This is the reason North Korea has a 1.1 million metric ton food shortage every single year. Right? and why generations of populations in North Korea have been malnourished. It's just bad economic decisions that have to do with the political leadership. And, and breathtakingly sad. Incredibly sad. I mean, North Korea, is a, it's a resource-rich country. It's one of the few industrialized countries that has suffered a famine because of economic mismanagement. Victor, so much to talk about always with North Korea and South Korea and the United States. Thanks so much for coming on Truth of the Matter today to help us understand it a little bit better. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Andrew. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 